0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Alright, so uh, as, a, as a reminder from last week, we, we emphasized that God is sovereign over all that He has made, including the suffering and evil that exists in the world He made good. So sin and evil and suffering are not things that take God by surprise or somehow thwart or attempt to thwart his plans. I didn't have this in your packet last week or this week, and I I wish I had, so maybe it'll stick in your minds. I heard a uh, a helpful definition of providence not too long ago. We talk about God's providence, his providential rule, and I heard it um, succinctly described as God's purposeful, sovereignty. God's sovereignty is purposeful. That's what we mean when we say that he rules with providence. So he's sovereign over all that he has made, and nothing is outside of his control. But then we also see suffering in the world, and so as we talked last week trying to consider the so-called problem of suffering, we see suffering in the world as a result of man's sin and rebellion. After the fall in Genesis 3, we see curses pronounced on man and woman and the ground and the serpent. The world is under a curse because of man's sin and rebellion. And that, too, is not something that God took by surprise. And his plans to redeem the world ultimately through Christ, that's not plan B. But God is not held morally responsible for the sinful choices that we make and the sinful nature that we inherit from Adam as a result of his sin. So we're holding both forward, the the sovereignty and providential rule of God and our moral accountability and responsibility to God as sinners. And then lastly, where we kind of left off last week and where we're picking up today is that the Bible is replete with examples of God's good intentions for suffering, despite wicked or demonic intentions for evil purposes. We used the illustration of Joseph and his brothers, Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt. He tells his brothers point blank, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good. We saw some of the good that um, God accomplished through that in saving God's people from famine and delivering them safely into Egypt. We saw that ultimately climax in passages from Acts 2 and Acts 4 with the sinful intentions of Jesus' enemies wanting to have him killed. Jesus said, you, you know, killed him at the hands of lawless men, but God had determined that for our salvation. So You see, not, not simply a struggle between like, the light side and the dark side, but God's intention superseding that of wicked ones, sinful ones, even demonic ones. He has good intentions. So, again, the promise, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Suffering is by no means exempt from that promise. And we're going to talk today about a number of ways in which God works and brings good not despite suffering, but through it. So, moving along in your packet, and remember, you've got verses on the back that's meant to be a resource for you, not just in uh, verses for today, but also in uh, psalms that uh, reflect lamentation and suffering, a bibliography of resources that I've used in putting this packet together, and suggested songs and hymns from our library that reflect crying out to God in the midst of trials or, or difficulty suffering and i'll reiterate this especially if you weren't here last week the structure of this block is taken from the suffering for god's glory course seminar from capitol hill baptist church and both they and i will reference other resources in the bibliography so the structure is taken from capitol hill and then there are a number of other resources that are are cited or used uh, and i would heartily recommend them to you especially the thomas watson book all things for good and a shorter read uh, in much more modern language, When Pain is Real and God Seems Silent by Ligon Duncan. I would uh, hold those forward to you as very good resources, as well as Suffering by Paul David Tripp. They're all wonderful uh, reads um, in their own merit, but those are some ones that I would suggest to you if this is a topic that you'd like to press further into, or maybe you know somebody that uh, you, you know, you, you're praying for somebody who's going through something, you want to encourage them or help them, Uh, If you're the type that likes to give good books to people, uh, you might find one on that list that would be an encouragement both to you and to someone. So make use of of that as you will, and I'll try to give it to you each week. Um, So moving along in your packet, our, our comfort in suffering should not be to the degree to which we can understand God's purposes, but to the degree to which we can trust our Savior. That doesn't mean He's left us without understanding. That doesn't mean He's left us without a testimony to what He is doing in and through the work He does in our lives. But our, our foundational trust in the Lord is not built on understanding everything that's going on in our lives and what God's doing in it, but, but knowing the Lord. And there, there's a difference there, um, This is maybe slightly related to this. I saw a news headline this week that um, there is a a famous female American soccer player From our uh, women's national team that just played her last match. I don't remember how to pronounce her name Megan Rapinoe or Rapinoe Um, It made national news that early in her final match she got injured. It was a a game and it would have been season-ending injury and uh, she is pretty outspoken in her um, anti-Christian worldviews and lifestyle. And she used her injury uh, as basically her evidence that well, clearly there can't be a God because if there was a God, he wouldn't he wouldn't let me, you know, go out from my last game with this injury. Um, we I think we look at that. And we go, well, we, we could pick holes all through that. Um, the fact that she has a beating heart and lungs to breathe and a professional soccer career and all sorts of things, there's plenty of evidence in her life of the grace that she has received from God. Um, but she's embittered by her, her suffering and is using it as further evidence and heart-hardening against the reality and truth of God. And we can look at that and go, yeah, I see the problems with that, but I wonder in our own lives if we can become embittered or if we can become frustrated or if we can be given to doubt when, likewise, we don't understand our circumstances, when we're not getting the answers that we want about, you know, why why am I struggling with this wayward child or why is my health continuing to fail or why am I having frustrations in my marriage or why is this person at work so difficult? Or why can we constantly, you know, not keep our car out of the shop or, or whatever? And uh, it, it may not be a, a, as vocal and certainly anti-Christian as this soccer player, but uh, it's a reminder, I think, for all of us that our, our, understa- our comfort is ultimately not drawn from our understanding of our circumstances, but in knowing who God is and, and what he promises to his people. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is a good reminder. The Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we do not have the ability to comprehend all that God is doing. And He is not obligated to tell us all that is on His mind. He, I think primarily tells us who he is, and our comfort is drawn from his good character. And so it's that. It's kind of a step removed then from the understanding. I thought about this. I was trying to think about this kind of an example with my kids. There was a, uh, an argument, a, a, a disobedient uh, child situation, and um, the, the kid in question had been... Um, had been given instructions on completing a school assignment. It was going to take a number of hours to complete, but it wasn't due for another several days. And so teacher slash mom says to child, you need to pace yourself. You need to do a little bit of work each day, get about an hour of it done each day, and then by the end of the week, you'll be, you'll be ready if you, if you pace yourself. Uh, child did not follow those instructions and you know lo and behold we get to the day before the the project or assignment is due and it takes this this child of I'm trying not to use gender pronouns so you can't figure out who it is Um, it takes this this child of mine about four hours in one sitting to do a project that should have been you know not as overwhelming and it was frustrating for the child it was frustrating for my wife, the teacher. But what I, what I told uh, my, my wonderful child, who, who never does things like this, um, was, did you not trust your mom that her counsel was good? I, I, I think it ultimately boiled down to a trust issue. The child did not trust mom-slash-teacher to have a child's best intentions, and to know what was good and right. And so, in in failing to trust the good counsel, a child suffers for it. And so, it became not about, for, for this kid of mine, it wasn't about, I don't understand why I have to do this assignment. It was, are you trusting those in authority over you? And this was an example where this child was not. So, may be a silly example, but if we, are, if we know and are growing in our understanding of and trust in the character of God, then we will trust that what he is doing is for our good, even if we don't see how all the pieces fit together. Um, and we have further comfort from a passage like Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if we know if the Lord is unchanging and we know what He has revealed about Himself, that He is good, that He is abounding in steadfast love, that He's slow to anger, that He's patient and kind and compassionate and gracious and just, all the things that He has revealed to us about Himself give us comfort that in the midst of pain and suffering that He hasn't abandoned us, that He is still actively working in and through and for us. And so it can boil down to a trust issue.
1: Real okay. time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, You're going to do one of two things. You're, you're going to in- interpret your circumstances in light of God and his truth, or you're going to interpret God through the lens of your circumstances. And we want to place the Lord as the lens through which we see our circumstances and not, not the other way around. No, I mean, I think what the what the soccer player said probably resonated with a lot of people. Well, clearly, clearly, if God were loving, He wouldn't let you get hurt in your last game. Yeah, and that it's also a slap into face, a slap in the face of just the the common grace that that she has been shown. So, um, but my point in bringing that up, we're not largely talking about suffering in the lives of unbelievers, especially today, we're talking about our own suffering. We too can get myopic and focus on the, the pain, the suffering, and let it come to the forefront. And then we start seeing the Bible and, and the Lord's character through the lens of that rather than the other way around. And so it's good to remind us about the character of God and what he promises to do through suffering to help keep our perspective right. And to kind of piggyback off of what Timothy said, it also means that we should be careful in ministering to people who are suffering. Job's friends are a perfect example of, well, it started well, going and being with him, but we can't make assumptions about why particularly something is happening. We don't want to trivialize what's going on with people's lives or their pain. The last thing we want to do is try to turn their suffering into some sort of riddle that we're trying to solve. And so, you know, Job's friends heap on him. Well, they had a very black and white view of the world, right? Well, you must have done something bad, so just own up to it and... You know, this will all work out. And you can forget his kids are dead. He's lost his health. Most of his possessions, his wife is ready for him to abandon the Lord. So we don't want to trivialize what's going on in the lives of people. It should also cause us to be careful in ministering to people. And I think we'll press further into this a little bit later on in our study. Um, but there is something to be said for just the ministry of presence, like Timothy said, uh, especially, you know, you mentioned the, the, the suicide of a, a loved one. I mean, such a, just a shock and an explosion of, um, you know, disruption into your life. That's probably not the appropriate time to do a ton of talking. That, may, that time may come but presence also shouldn't be underestimated. And we'll we'll talk about that probably in future weeks. Today we want to consider suffering as a gift. Um, You know, we we said this last week, I think, when we were talking about James 1, when James says that, not incontroversial, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. If... If you had given me like a fill-in-the-blank Bible and it said count it all blank when you face trials of various kinds, period, I don't know if joy is the word I would have written there. I don't know what you would have written there, but uh, sometimes you come to a passage like that and you're like, that's really not what I want to count it. I'd like to count it something else. I'd like to count it maybe a cause for complaining or uh, you know something to lead me to despair, certainly not joy. But we are enabled by the Spirit to count it all joy, at least in part because of God's promises to us in the midst of it. Um, we do see that suffering is granted. And this kind of reinforces the idea of God's providence in it. It's not just that, well, it happens, right? That's the world you live in. It, it happens. God grants suffering to His people for the sake of following Christ. In Philippians 1.29 Paul writes, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then Jesus says very plainly in Luke 9, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The Bible gives us every expectation that suffering is is coming and that God rules over it, even that it is something that He grants. And if it's something that He grants to His people, then we believe that it is a good gift, not something to be despised. Not good in and of itself. We want to be careful about that. So, this is where, like... Uh, Funerals can be tricky. We don't want to adopt a theology where we make death something good. We can can simultaneously say, the suffering that God brings to me is for my good, and in that I can count it all joy, and we're going to talk about some of those reasons why. But we don't want to say that the, um, the means by which that happens is necessary necessarily inherently good. Death is an enemy. And so we're holding it in apparent tension God's goodness and good purposes even through things that are not in of themselves good. Does that make sense? I shared with y'all briefly my testimony last week that my first being connected to this body of believers and to the gospel was through directly the death of my older brother. So I don't look at his death and say his death is a good thing because death is not a good thing. Death is an enemy. But I see the Lord's providence in how that was used in my own life, and I see the good that he has worked through it. And so we want to be careful not to end up calling things good that are not good, while also not divorcing that from the Lord's providence. Does that make sense? We, and that's a, that's a helpful example when you see, like, the active ill will of people or demonic forces. In, like, the, the death of my brother, for example, there was no human ill will that produced that. He had a heart condition. He got sick and died. So I don't have a person to go to and say, you meant this ill for him or for me or for my family, but God meant it for good. In his case, I'm just kind of looking up, as it were, and seeing the only one I see at work here is the Lord. Does that mean there's not other things going on in the spiritual realm? I have no idea. Job's kids died and Satan was actively involved in that. I, the Lord has not peeled back the curtain on everything that he is doing. And that's another thing where we go, I have to trust here. I, I do not see everything. But I do believe that he has, was, is working that particular evil for good. Um... That's another where, an area where I think we should be careful with our words and careful as we're talking to people, to not make something bad good. You can let the pendulum swing to, well, if God is sovereign, then everything must be good, and that's not true. But if, if you swing it the other way, then you go, well, if there are legitimately bad things, then maybe God's not actually in control of this, and that's not true either. Um... All the ways that God acts in and for His people are for their good. We've been saying that again and again. It's helpful to actually see it in the text, Romans eight twenty eight. That book, All Things for Good, is uh, a book this thick on just that verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. He pretty much has a chapter on, like, every couple words. Like, He has like chapters devoted to all things. So, if you love the Puritans, you need to get you this book. If you don't love the Puritans, this book might make you love the Puritans. It's a good one. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called called according to His purpose. This is not exclusive to the New Testament. Psalm 25.10 says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. I'm sure we could make a much longer list than this, but we're going to go through nine revealed good intentions from God for suffering for His people. Things that God does in and through and for us by means of suffering. The first is that and also, the, the Scripture list here is certainly not exhaustive. We could just read Scripture for an hour in here every time, and that would be just fine. So this is not an exhaustive list of texts to help you see this, uh, but I hope it will suffice for today. One of the th- things that we see God doing in suffering is that He uses, in su- he uses suffering to grow us in holiness. Psalm 119.67 Psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. We see suffering in the Bible depicted like like a purifying fire, burning away impurity from the people of God. One of my, at least a verse that's been on my mind a lot lately is, um, that the lord's will is your sanctification i've been thinking about that a lot lately and um, you know I, I think this is I would at least I would like to think this is something I struggle with less than I used to but I think I think about the young people like our college students that sit over here on Sundays and uh, as they're as they're navigating school and thinking about you know, grad school or marriage or jobs and, and all the things that they're thinking about, you know, what is God's will for me? Um, you know, in, in, our, in our role, you know, we, you, you get questions like that and, you know, is God's will for you to be an attorney or uh, a CPA or a lawyer or a doctor? Or, uh, I, I don't know, but I know the Lord's will is your sanctification. Um, we, can, we can say that with confidence. And further, that he accomplishes that purpose through suffering. Suffering gets our attention, and we see him using suffering to bring about our holiness. We actually see something um, s- similar, actually, in, in Jesus. And Michael will get to this in Hebrews uh, I hadn't intended to talk about this today, but you you see um, the man, Jesus Christ, Hebrews depicts him as one, as one who, though he was a son, learned obedience through what he suffered. And so not only is God doing that in the lives of his people, he actually holds Jesus forth as one who in the incarnation is suffering greatly and is held forth to be the perfect son of God. And so uh, we... Um, mimic that, I suppose you could say, as it were, in our own suffering. Of course, Jesus does not have sin to be removed. There is no dross to be removed in him. Yet, in taking on the flesh of a man, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Likewise, God intends for us to grow in sanctification through what we suffer. That shouldn't surprise us. I mean, that's really what sanctification is, right? It's becoming more like Christ. In doing that, Romans 5.3 shows us that God intends for suffering to build and grow our perseverance. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. When you see calls like in Romans 5 or in James 1, to count it all joy or to rejoice in your sufferings, again, it's not because of the thing itself. I don't look back on the death of my brother and I go, I rejoice that my brother died. It's not the thing itself that is the cause of rejoicing. It's the character of God and the faithfulness of God through that that we are thankful for. We rejoice in our sufferings. It's not a period there. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Same thing with James. Count it all joy uh, as you face trials of various kinds. And then James fills in the blank of some of God's revealed Purposes. That's actually the next uh, verse on your, on your packet. He grows us in maturity. This is James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The joy does not come from the trials in and of themselves. It comes from the knowledge that as God is using these things to test our faith, He is producing steadfastness, maturity. That is where the joy comes from in the trials. He uses it to teach us His Word. Psalm 119, 71. I was reading over Psalm 119 a little bit in the last week or two, and it kind of struck me how many times... The psalmist says, it was good for me that I was afflicted. When I think about Psalm 119, I kind of think about it as a a chapter in the Bible about the Word of God, and it is that. But there's so much in there about affliction. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It's a means of God teaching us His Word. You can probably testify in your own experience of suffering that as you, as you go through those things, the Lord will bring to mind and bring to your attention things in His Word to comfort you and to encourage you, to help you. God teaches us His Word and uses suffering to do that. This is an important one. Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 helps us see that God intends for suffering to help us encourage others. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Pay careful attention to this. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Suffering... I'll speak for myself anyway. It's very easy for suffering for me to make me an inward-looking person. Pain kind of naturally does that to you. If you are in physical pain, your attention is directed to the source of that. I don't like this. I want to be rid of it. What do I need to do to get rid of this pain? And suffering of a variety of kinds naturally makes us more inward than we already are we don't need help being selfish and pain without spiritual eyes to see can make us do that even more i think it's helpful in second corinthians that we see one of the things god intends for us to do in suffering is not to be drawn inward but to be looking outward because as we are comforted by god in our affliction there's an inherent, inherent promise there for God's people that there is comfort to be expected in our affliction. But it's not just for our own sake. It's so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So, you may be able to look back on things that you have experienced and suffered and trials and difficulties that you've gone through, and that, the things that the Lord has helped you through, comforted you through things that you have learned, things that you have seen in his word, good things that he has produced in your life is not just for your sake. It is for the sake of your neighbor who is suffering likewise. So We need to have our eyes open to those around us who are suffering and not let the suffering simply be an inward drawing thing but moving us outward in ministry. I I wonder if Job's friends had gone through similar things, how different their comfort would have been. 2 Corinthians also says that suffering, God intends to use it to wean us off self reliance. I wonder how many things are more offensive to God than our pretending that we are independent of Him. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. My kids are getting to an age now where in some very practical ways, they just don't need us as much for everything as they used to. And that's kind of a double-edged sword for me. I like the, you know, Jenkins, I'm sorry to pick on you guys. It's nice to not have kids in diapers. It's nice that most of my kids can fix their own breakfast and fix their own lunch. And we can leave them for, uh, depending on, you know, which kids are there, they can be at home by themselves to a certain extent. It's nice. But there is that sad part of me that's like, I wish you would stop growing up. I don't want to go back to the diapers, but maybe like the day after. You know? I see something of you know, this in, in that passage as a shadow anyway that we are never self-reliant when it comes to our existence in this world. We are not independent of God. And uh, it may be too much to say that, you know, trying to rank things that would be offensive to God, but in a world that God has made and sustains and is carrying forward, to think that we live independent of him, uh, I think is a dangerous road to be on. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that they're suffering. That, I mean, they were like, we're going to die. There's no way we're getting out of this. We despaired of life itself. We, we thought we had received the sentence of death. And what was the purpose of that? God used it to make them rely on Him. He he uses pain to remind you that you need Him. So, you know, when my kid falls off her bike and skins her knee, I want her to come to me. I don't want her to run into the bathroom and clean up her knee and get a Band-Aid and take care of herself. I want her to come to me. God, too, would not have us live as if we did not need Him. And He uses affliction to remind us that we do. Um, okay. He uses in suffering to strengthen our assurance. This is also a really important one. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So, as we see God working in our lives to build in us holiness, grow us in perseverance, mature us in faith, correct us in sin, all of those things, the discipline of God, we are being treated as the children of God. I tell my kids, you know, if we're at the grocery store and, you know, some other, you know, hooligan children are running around, like, not my circus, not my monkeys, right? They, y'all are my monkeys and I, y'all got enough problems for me to deal with. I treat you as my children. You are the ones I discipline and correct. God treats us as sons. If he didn't, we would not have the assurance that we belong to him. So, the grocery store image is one thing. Like, I'm going to correct y'all. I'm not going to correct the kid who's running down the aisle. But then, when we're at home, and you get in trouble, then you have to receive that discipline and correction as a mark of love. If I didn't love you, then I would treat you like the kid at the grocery store. Well, you're not mine, so this this isn't my problem to deal with. But because they are mine, they are not left without discipline. So discipline, although painful, reminds us that we belong to God. If he were to take his hand off of us, there is no assurance that we belong to him. This is why if you're... This is kind of a a side road. We'll go down real quick. Maybe you're talking to somebody or struggling with assurance yourself. There's a person in your life that is, you know, I just... I struggle with whether or not I'm actually a Christian. One of the things that you can press into is... Well, does the Lord correct you in your sin? Do you experience the discipline of the Lord? Do you see him bringing you to conviction? Do you see the good things that he means to do through those things being done in you? Or or not? Discipline, even in the forms of suffering, can be a reminder of us belonging to God. Does that make sense? seen this in your own life? Or this may be a good point to pause real quick for questions or comments on some of those things that we've talked about God doing. we got a couple more. Any questions there before we move on? Go for it. That's a really good question. Um, how can a person distinguish between, okay, so like I've got this trial, I've got this suffering, I've got this difficulty. how how can I see like, is this like discipline from the Lord on me, his child, or is it not? Is it something else? Is it, you know, am I am I or is this other person outside of Christ? Um, I think there's some questions that you can ask. One would be... Where where is my attention going as a result of this? Do I find myself being drawn to the Lord and coming to Him for grace and for help and for mercy and forgiveness? Or is my trajectory not Godward? Is my trajectory being further hardened into sin and disobedience? So trajectory is one thing to look at. And think, Michael talks about this like, like a stock, and I think it's really helpful. Don't zoom too far in. If you zoom too far into your life in one of the valleys, you may go, well, I guess I'm not a Christian because today I really blew it. You need to zoom out far enough where you can see progress or lack thereof over time. So trajectory is a better word than like just where I'm doing today. So one thing would be like, what what is happening as a result of this? Is my trajectory more reliance on God? Is it trust in the gospel? Am I taking the sin that I'm experiencing, that, um, that I'm walking in, or that I feel like I'm being corrected for, am I coming to the Lord with that and casting it on him, or am I trying to bear this myself? So ask some of those trajectory questions. I think that's one thing. Um, Matthew 13, is a good verse in the New Testament that kind of depicts salvation as the discovery of a treasure, the treasure hidden in the field. Do I view Christ and his gospel as a treasure worth trading it all for, or would I rather have my sin? So that's a value statement. So there's a trajectory thing that I think is worth asking, and I think there's a value thing worth asking. What do I value ultimately Do I value my sin or do I value Christ? You can answer, I value Christ. You can genuinely answer, I value Christ and my trajectory is Godward and still find yourself falling short and struggling with sin and battling with the flesh. So the third thing to ask, I think, there's a lot of things you could ask, but a third thing I would say is, is my struggle against God on the side of my flesh Or is it on the side of God against my flesh? Paul says, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. He kind of depicts that struggle for us. In that question, though, what do you hear from him? I don't want to do it. In In my soul, the new man in me does not want to do that. And the good things that the new man in me does want to do, I find myself struggling to do them. So, Desire. What what is where, where are my desires? Am I comfortable in sin and desiring that? Or am I uncomfortable in sin? And do I find that when where there is sin or correction or trial, it may not even be sin. It may be like a difficulty of some kind. Um, what is that doing to me over time? Am I find my do I find myself trusting in the Lord or do I find myself relying on my own strength? So trajectory. Value, desire, those are some things that I think can help us navigate those waters. Charlie, did you have something? Yeah that that's it right there because who who helps me in any sort of way to navigate can you measure the trajectory of your life by yourself you need people to look at you and say brother this is an area where you you need to repent or if it's a sin thing or i know that this is really really hard and one of the things you're being tempted to Is to see yourself maybe not under God's loving hand of discipline, but maybe outside of Christ. This is really testing your assurance. But I can look at you and I see so much evidence of the Lord's work in your life and the fruit in your life. That's why we practice church membership the way that we do. Church membership is the church saying, I believe this person is a Christian, and I continue to believe that they are a Christian. And when we take the Lord's supper together, that's us saying, we're still in this together. And what does discipline, what does church discipline do? That's the church saying, brother, sister, be warned, this path that you're on is is not becoming of a citizen of Christ's kingdom and a member of his body. Repentance is the way we demonstrate, no, I I am one of these. And a lack of repentance, continued unrepentance, the church ultimately says, as best we can tell, you're not. So... Absolutely, we need the the testimony, encouragement, and help from the body of Christ to do that. Um, We could go down that road for a long time, but 100%, yes. Yeah, and I, I think it's important, you know, what you said. We, we, wanna, we don't want to be guilty of Job's friends or the disciples saying, hey, Jesus, whose sin is responsible for this, this man or his parents, the man born blind? And Jesus said it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God means to glorify himself through that. So, yes, it is true that, like, sickness, death, and hurricanes, and stubbed toes, and tick bites, and all that, the things that come from living in a fallen world we don't want to just stop there and say, well, it happens, you know, get over it. People, people die. And I'm not saying that you're saying that. We, we want to push further and say, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so, again, it's the lens you're looking through. Is it, is it the Romans 8.28 lens? Or is it the, I was in the last soccer game of my career, and I you know, tore my ACL, and it's just further evidence that there can't be a God. It's the, it's the perspective that we want to be careful about, which is why, real quick, one of the other things that God does in bringing suffering to us is for the purpose of directing our gaze to Jesus. Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider Him. That's the, that's the command in Hebrews 12.3. Consider Him. Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted? Sometimes the Bible just commands you to think. Consider him. Consider Jesus. Consider his suffering. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. God means for our suffering not just to be inward. And not also just to be outward to look to serve people, although that's good and commendable. The gaze is meant to be lifted to Jesus. Look to Jesus so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. And lastly, to glorify the Lord. Here's a, did I fail to put Psalm 73 in there? I think, oh no, it's on, at least it's in a different part of my packet. Psalm seventy-three, twenty-five and 26, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In in Paul's affliction, when he said that they had been given over to despair, they thought they had received the sentence of death, and it was so that, that they would not be self-reliant but trust in God. That glorifies God because it shows him to be trustworthy and faithful and good. When we lean on the good character of God and show forth him as trustworthy and good and loving and merciful and kind, that is glorifying. We're holding him forth to be that treasure worth giving it all for. So suffering, God intends for it to glorify himself. We saw this in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Here's the value statement. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. We talked a little bit about this last week, and this is where we'll close. Suffering exposes the bankruptcy, ultimately, of this world in its present state. You are more aware of the world's inability to ultimately bring you any sort of contentment or satisfaction or salvation when you experience suffering. When we we have the veneer of comfort and ease and prosperity, again, that becomes the lens, too. When prosperity is your lens, then God behind it becomes, well, he just must mean for me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, and whole. Right? Right? Suffering takes that away, and we see the world and its inability to ultimately satisfy us. And it points us, your your spiritual thirst, in other words, is meant to drive you to springs of living water in Christ. And you, you need to experience the thirst, you need to experience the pain, in order to embrace the goodness and the comfort of God in the midst of it. That's a good place for us to stop Next Sunday, all the blocks will be together because my family will be out of town. Um, so I believe y'all will just meet in here and you'll get uh, whatever is coming next in church history. Uh, I intentionally designed this to be 12 sessions so that we're not going to have to like, double up or catch up. So on Sunday, December 3rd, we will resume um, with considerations of heaven and hell and how we think about eternal suffering and eternal joy. So let's pray as we close. Father, we recognize that often our trials and suffering and the discipline we receive as your children, I know I often do not come at these with a biblical or Christ-exalting attitude. I am often selfish and self-centered, questioning and doubting. I often am given to lack of trust. We are so thankful for what you have revealed to us in your word. You could be doing a trillion different things in our lives but we know on the authority of your word so many good things that you are doing. We cling to the promise that for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, all things work together for good. May your word and who you are be the lens that we see our lives through. Help us not to be given to the temptation to interpret you through our circumstances. You are true. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at
1: 6.15.